Computers couldn't write, and now they can. That's quite profoundly world-changing. Anytime a technology speeds up fundamentally human activity, that changes the world. 2700 BCE, the abacus is invented, changes the world. The printing press changes the world, is the Reformation, the Renaissance, the steam engine, electricity, radioactivity, the internet. Why do I think large language models will change the world and the most important technology since the internet is because... In, in some ways it's scary though. Oh my God, it's gonna kill us all. It's gonna steal all of our jobs. I want to talk a little bit about the fact that you grew your business so rapidly. It was literally two of us sat around a table. By the time I sold that business, there were 250 people working, 25 million turnover, 5 million profit a year. We humans are programmed for the simple, easy answers, but actually most of life isn't a simple, easy answer. It's a constant struggle. Welcome to The Virtuous Mindset. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, really good to have you. We always kickstart the podcast asking all of our guests the same question. And it's always interesting to see how their answers vary. And so as a CEO and founder, what does it mean to you to have a virtuous mindset? Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, so what does it mean to have a virtuous mindset? I guess um, knowing what it is that you want to achieve and, and doing it in the right way. I guess yeah. that would be my my one sentence answer. Yeah, no, that's yeah. fine. That's good. It's always good to know what you want out of life. So that makes all the difference. You've got a really interesting background. You started your career off as a frontline unemployment advisor in Brent, London. Yes. You're then managing and designing these large scale public service contracts. And then you've got your two businesses, Corndale, which we'll talk about, and then Autogen AI. Talk me through that journey in terms of where you started and where you are today. Yes. Uh, so uh, my degree is in philosophy, mm -hmm. which basically makes you unemployable. So, or at least it did at the time. So, um, so I didn't. I had literally no idea what it was that I wanted to do for mm. a, a career, uh, and so I looked in the university paper at the time. It was a long, long time ago. So that's how you found jobs. You looked in the uh, the university prospectus, uh, and there were lots of jobs for investment bankers, mm -hmm. and there were lots of jobs for consultants, uh, and nothing wrong with investment banking or consultancy. But it, I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do, at least to start with. And then there was this one tiny advert in the corner. Um, which said, do you want to change the world? Do you want to inspire people? Do you want to change people's yeah. lives? Uh, if so, apply here. Uh, and so I was immediately taken to that advert, which is very different to anything else which was in the uh, prospectus at the time. Uh, and so I went along. And as I say, it was a, a job to help uh, long-term unemployed people in Brent into work. So it's for people who are between the ages of 25 and 65 who'd been out of work for at least two years. Wow. So people who were much older than me, um, much more life experience, um, but who, who weren't able to find find um, jobs and I had no I, I just assumed I wouldn't be given this job what did I know about finding jobs I couldn't find myself one let alone anybody else mm. um, but it's a real visionary who ran that uh, contract a guy called uh, Richard who's still the best boss that I ever had mm. and he for some reason he gave me a job uh, it turned out I was pretty good at finding other people um, jobs and really my career went from there to um then looking at policy for helping unemployed mm. people into work. So mm. if you do it on the front line, I think anyone who's ever run a frontline public service or worked in a frontline public service really starts to worry about the people who are making policy and starts to be very sceptical about whether any of them have ever actually kind of <laughs> been on the, uh, yeah. on the front line. So I, I, I went to work in policy and then I, that was bid writing and tender writing. Um, so, so, so actually building the proposals together for, um, for government. Um, and so I, I did that for a long time and then moved back to operations, then back 
sector policy. Um, and then I got sort of promoted up through various different organizations uh, and then decided it was time for a change and started a business, Corndell, mm. uh, and then left Corndell and started now my new business, also Gen AI, but which takes me right back to my first career, yeah. um, writing bids, tenders and proposals. So it has been a bit strange. I guess... Um, I guess I like doing new things. I mm. guess I get bored very easily. Mm. Uh, I guess I like to move on. Um, I guess once I feel that I've worked out, like the first time you do something, you don't know how to do it. And I find that exceptionally exciting and interesting. Um, the second time you do something, it's kind of good because you're refining it and you've got all those lessons you've learned from the first time when you didn't know how to do it. The third time I've done something, I'm probably a little bit bored with it. I feel I've got the knack of it. Yeah. I'm like, once you've got the knack of it and then it's just step repeat, turn the sausage handle that to me is kind of like that's when I get bored and want to do the next thing yeah I mean you only had you had Corndale for four years right you yeah. sold it within four years of starting it and we're yes. gonna get into that because I really yeah. want to dig into that but for those that don't know much about Corndale can mm -hmm. you give us a brief overview of who Corndale are and also how did you come up with the idea so uh, Corndale is a management and technology training company so um, we we train people to be better managers better leaders train, train people to be better data scientists um, train people to be software engineers devops engineers um, we really came up with that idea there was in 2017 uh, a, a new tax was being introduced called the apprenticeship yeah i read about this yeah tax um, and so this was at a time of deep government austerity mm. everything was being cut uh, well there were only three areas that weren't being cut in 2017 one was the nhs the NHS never gets cut. Yeah. Um, two was Brexit consultancy. Someone was going to have to work out how you made like kind of success of this complete mess of a, a policy. Uh, and the third area was this apprenticeship levy, mm. where the amount which was going to be spent on apprenticeships was going to raise, be uh, go up from one billion pounds to mm. three billion pounds, mm -hmm. uh, being paid for by this tax. Then that organisations were going to have to spend. So it was an area of increasing government spend, but critically, the um, decision about whether that money was going to be spent was going to be taken out of the hands of civil servants and put in the hands of HR directors and corporate development mm. directors and finance directors in big corporates. And mm. so the sort of training you were going to need to deliver would have to appeal to those and give actually genuine bottom line value for those organisations. So was actually working as an advisor to a software provider who was working in that sector at the time. And they said, Sean, who's going who's gonna to win in this new environment? And I said, that's easy. It's going to be people who are delivering brilliant quality training mm. and people who understand how to present brilliant quality training to corporates and people who are able to do it compliantly to meet the bureaucratic rules of the apprenticeship levy. And uh, so the, the company I was advising said, well, can we go down the list of training providers then and work out who are the people who meet those three criteria I said yep no problem at all so we went through the list of 1400 providers and by the end we'd got to zero people who met those criteria really so wow. we thought it'd be a good idea to set something up which yeah. did which is what we did and it was um you know right place right time one of those kind of opportunities that um that come along but essentially to do you know I think throughout my career and partly this is just uh, a preference to be doing things excellently and as well as you possibly can. But I think if you do things excellently and do things as well as they can be done, then people recognize that and that's what gives you sustainable growth. Yeah. So that's what we did at uh, Corndell. So set it up in 2016 uh, with a, another founder, Richard Allberg. And, you know, it was, it was literally kind of two of us sat around a, a table and we 
took on our first employee and then took on, uh, you know, kind of um, more people. Mm. And yeah, so by the time I sold that business, there were 250 people working, 25 million turnover, 5 million profit a year. Oh my God. So it was, um, yeah, <laughs> wow. it, was, it was quite, it was quite a, quite a journey, but it's yeah. very exciting. And, and most importantly, with the thousands of students who are going through our programs, becoming better managers, better leaders, um, better technologists. Yeah. You've touched on some really interesting points. And I want to start off really with the fact that you talked about you've come up with a solution to a problem effectively you've identified there's an issue and you've come up with the solution so how do you know from an entre entrepreneurial standpoint which idea to pursue because oftentimes that's what's the difficulty and you don't know which one to go ahead with yeah so what are your thoughts on that um pursue keep pursuing ideas until you find one that works mm. so no so so ideas are, i find ideas really interesting yeah um ideas Ideas are intellectually satisfying, mm. um, but you don't know which idea is going to work until you put it out there in the real world. And I, yeah. you know, I've I've had lots of ideas that I thought were brilliant ideas, which yeah. turn out when you actually put them into cold commercial reality, turn out not to work at all and turn out to be terrible. Yeah. Uh, and then I've seen lots of ideas that I thought were terrible, which turned out to be quite good. I mean, like yeah. I remember the first time someone showed me a website where you could write two hundred characters and then send them to other people in the like idiot sphere to read another 200 <laughs> characters yeah. i said that's the worst idea for a business ever i don't mm. see how this is ever going to survive but twitter today is doing okay yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah I, know. I, I clearly knew nothing so um yeah. so, so you don't like um one of my big heroes is richard Feynman, the uh the um nobel um winning physicist he said you know it doesn't matter who you are how clever you are how good your idea is if it disagrees with experiment then it's wrong that's the basis of of science and yeah. entrepreneurialism is just kind of an applied commercial science yeah. you I've, I've, you know you have loads of ideas go and try it see if anyone will buy it if they won't buy it then it's not a very good idea it doesn't matter yeah. how good you thought it was it doesn't matter how elegant the idea is yeah. how beautiful how you know kind of you go wow everyone will buy that like you go i had this idea that's brilliant that's going to really take off and then mm. you actually do it it never does yeah. we can have an idea you think he's very pedestrian I mean, yeah. you know, doing a management training company under a hypothecated tax on paper probably doesn't sound like the most you know innovative interesting idea um but it turns out very very commercially successful if you yeah. if you execute it well but isn't it time time consuming in a way mm -hmm. because then if you're trying out all these different ideas and then you pursue every single one of those especially if you're not technically minded or you don't really have that business spirit then isn't that a bit of a difficulty in a way yeah I mean I, I quite like it's a bit of a cliche now and a bit like sort of Silicon Valley tech bro but fail fast I think yeah. is, a, is a good oh, yeah. lesson kind of actually kind of um I, I think it can be um overdone but you know try stuff out see yeah. if it works and don't you know as i say people become very enamored with their own ideas yeah yeah it's very easy to do like you know if, if no one's buying it the market's giving you a lesson which yeah, you stop doing it <laughs> right exactly yeah. so you just have to listen to yeah. feedback and take on that feedback very quickly and change what you're doing or stop what you're doing right right yeah. agreed I want to talk a little bit about the fact that you grew your business so rapidly you mm -hmm. grew it to 350 people how many yeah. people did you say I can't remember exactly but it was 350 it was, I think yes. around that mark and Slightly, of course 250 250 you know, okay we're, 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 how did you maintain such a strong company culture mm -hmm. given mm -hmm. that you've grown it so rapidly within the space of four years because that's a thing that's probably a question mark for so many people listening to this 
Yeah, so, so, so I think culture is something you consistently have to work at. I think actually it's easier to start a culture than it is to move a culture. Because we'd built the business from scratch, it was very easy to instill the sort of culture that we that we wanted. So entrepreneurial, innovative, situational, customer obsessed, um, you know, compliance um, focused, you know, all of those things that we really needed to, to succeed in the in the space that um, Corndell was in. And how do you then, so, so if you start with a very tight culture with a tight knit group of people who will believe that, yeah. and then you recruit well and you test for then that uh, uh, so so people who share those values in recruitment and uh, you know for the first kind of 200 staff at Corndell I personally recruited every single one of them so really? I, I would do the final interviews for every single person who joined the team wow. and that was super important to me to maintaining that um, yeah. sort of cultural hold uh, and then you know we we'd communicate 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 so and you know I, I think you know CEOs once you get to a certain scale mm. don't do a lot when you're doing things. a startup you do everything and yeah. then when you get to a, a certain, you know when I when I left the corporate world and mm. you know, had a thousand staff and four business divisions and you know 80 million turnover um, you know I, I literally just went to kind of middle management type type meetings it feel you're adding a lot of value but the, the value you you do add is all around communicating culture and 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 you know culture is about what you allow what you encourage what you what you say is a red line all of those things i think uh you know that really clear consistent messaging and then saying you know giving that messaging repeatedly such that it's it's reinforced in every interaction yeah i agree and it's it's interesting because i was listening to a masterclass and rich richard branson was talking about ceos and and what they do day to day and he was saying that the whole point of of not attending a board meeting is because you are literally bored in the meeting so you need to make sure that you <laughs> yeah. are actively getting involved and doing other things and like you say when you're when you have that startup life you're in a position where you're the admin person you are getting involved in every single aspect of your business and you have to get stuck in yeah. sure and, and look and I, I guess um I mean I guess that's the thing there's a certain type of person who likes the detail who likes yeah. the doing who mm. likes the you know the, the problem solving at the front line and I, mm. I definitely like the problem solving yeah. at the front line I have to say you know kind of sat in a meeting with eight kind of people who all think they're important who don't really understand the problem because they're not close to the problem yeah but they're all sort of going to give their 10 minutes worth because they're paid to give their 10 minutes worth and sound important I don't find that enormously valuable in most circumstances yeah, no. I have to say yeah and, and I've you know kind of had the mispleasure of sitting in kind of board meetings like yeah. that a number of times yeah, yeah. <laughs> no that's good and I'm glad that <laughs> I'm glad that you are really stuck here yeah yeah I mean good. I think I think that this great phrase the other day I'm I'm I, I, I like playing backgammon and there's this great yeah. phrase by a backgammon teacher called Phil Simborg. And he said, when he's teaching, he said, I steal the best stuff from the past masters and I make up the rest. Yeah. And I and I love that notion, right? Of stealing yeah. all the best stuff from people who know what but he said from past masters, right? Mm. So you, you 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 take what you can learn from actual experts and yeah. then when there's no expertise to be had, you have to make it you have to make it up. Yeah. Um so the, the secret there I think is to to separate real experts from hot air and you yeah. know, there's lots of people who will talk right you know yeah. kind of but where does real expertise lie in different domains and what can you learn from where that real expertise is and then where there isn't real expertise or you've you got to think the there is then you've got to make it up right yeah. there isn't anywhere else to go it's then it's just creative yeah absolutely you you also mentioned to me that, that when we were talking that you ended up selling your business within four years yeah. and so 
how did you gather the confidence to go and sell? You talked about the fact that you get bored very easily. Mm-hmm. And so you, 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 you get really good at a specific venture and then you end up selling it. But where does that confidence really come from? in your life the, the confidence to to, to go in yeah to, to make the yeah. decision to end up selling it because sometimes that's a big decision to make and so, so to, to sell to sell corn yeah, a, a decision that actually so when i'd raised the money to yeah. start uh, well actually not to start corn but when yeah. we raised the money to be able to grow the um business the, you know every business takes an investment um period and particularly what we were doing there was a, a an 18 month time lag to get oh, right. to um cash um, cash generation. Um, so we we raised some money from 35 individual investors under the SEIS and EIS tax break schemes. Um, and as part of raising that money, I promised all of those investors that we would give them an exit in September 2020. So we'll actually promise to sell the company in September oh, 2020. Oh, really? Okay, no, that's so interesting. To, to, you had to stick to it. I had to, to make it. good on that promise to yeah. our investors. Yeah. What about those that are in a position that was that was perhaps similar to yourself and they're in the mm-hmm. predicament of wanting to sell their business, but they don't know what they're going to do next. There's that uncertainty. Like yeah. you obviously set up another business. You're yes. in the AI space. We're going yeah. to talk about that. Yeah. But what do they? What advice would you give to those that are in a similar position? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I think a lot of people. And look, bear in mind, I understand this is a ridiculously privileged um, position. So, yeah. um, so, so please take that on on board. With I, I know it's a ridiculously privileged position. A lot of time, you know, you think selling the business is going to be all and an end all, mm-hmm. right? You know, kind of when 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 you don't have money, you think that all of your problems are going to be solved when you've got money. And so often, of course, selling a business is a life-changing then amount of money. And then you realize, of course, that all your problems are not solved mm, yeah. by having money. Yeah. And that, you know, kind of you're, you're, you're still exactly the same person as you were before you yeah. sold the business, only um, now without the business. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so you, you still got these kind of existential human questions about, you know, what do yeah. I do next and what's yeah. meaningful and how do I get happy and, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, those things don't those things don't change. I mean, you, you don't have the same sort of material worries you might have had kind of beforehand, um, but those those things don't don't change. So um, yeah, if, I mean, I th- you know, I mean, I, I definitely wasn't I wasn't kind of that. I didn't have that. A lot of entrepreneurs talk about that, you know, sort of like sinking depression the day after they sell their business. It's yeah. sort of, oh my god, what am I going to do next? Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, and I, I stayed with Corndale for another year. Yeah. Uh, and then when I left Corndale, I was oh, what do I do next? And I, mm. so I retired for three weeks, but I was pretty bored. <laughs> three weeks. Yeah, well, I was bored, you know, yeah. kind of. And yeah. then I found large language models and I was just too excited by that. And, you know, so a, a very fortunate position that I didn't need to work, but I wanted to. And I realized that, you know, sitting around on the sofa twiddling my thumbs was you know, not I'm not, you know, I don't know how long I've got left to live, but that wasn't going to be, yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of, that wasn't a plan for a number of decades. You want to go out and do interesting things with interesting people and make a mark on the world and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, so, so yeah, I, yeah. Just, I don't know if that answered the question. No, it does. That. It does. And I think mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about those language models that you've mentioned in, yeah. in relation to Autogen AI. Again, I've done a bit of research into Autogen AI, but for those that don't know, can you give us a brief overview of, of the business? Yeah, so we're using generative artificial intelligence, large language models, so these new uh, advances, incredible advances uh, in AI to help organizations to write bids, tenders, and proposals um, faster and more efficiently. So, um, you know, organizations spend, in some cases, hundreds of millions of pounds mm. writing bids and tenders to, to win work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are trying to bring down the cost of doing that and increase the amount of work that people win by using our software. 
Yes, and also the other thing is that you're speeding up that entire process, isn't it? So traditionally, it would take days and days to get that work done, but you're doing it in a matter of well, I mean, minutes. In some cases, in some cases, years. Okay, right? if you were doing a big complex public service bid, you might do that over two years. Oh, that's quite if you're a bidding, bidding of time. to bidding to run a railway line or something. You know, they, those are those are in many cases year and a half, two year bids. So there's significant, significant, significant investment of time and money. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about the technology itself, because Mm -hmm. you've mentioned on your website and and thinking about the wider picture that Autogen AI's technology is going to transform the world in the next decade. Mm -hmm. How is it going to do that? So I I think we said that large language models will transform the, rather than our, just our implementation of them. Let me, let me give you a thesis. So, uh, and I I do this as a a kind of like um, humanities graduate rather than a techie. So I'm not a techie, I'm a humanities graduate. So, um, Computers couldn't write, and now they can. Like, that's profound. Like, I'm mm. really, really used to a calculator, a computer, being able to add up or multiply faster than I can. And, you know, I was kind of comfortable with that. It could do mm. it when I was born. So we're kind yeah. of born with it. Something we're born with is, the, I mean, I, I spent a long time, you know, you know, large part of my career writing. I, I considered it distinctly human and, and fundamentally human. And I didn't think a computer was ever going to be able to do it. Mm. And then, as I say, September 2021, I start looking at large language models, and I'm like, Oh goodness! Computers can now write faster than mm. us, and in many cases, better than us. Right? That so that's quite profoundly world-changing. Right? Computers can't write now; they can. And I'm going to suggest to you that any time a technology speeds up many times over a fundamentally human activity, that changes the world. So why, um, you know, kind of w- which technologies are going to change the world and which aren't going to change the world? The ones that are going to change the world are the ones that speed up fundamentally human activity mm. so 2000 bc 2700 bce the abacus is invented mm. so what right the abacus mm. well the abacus allows you to um uh, do uh, addition and multiplication faster so what i can do addition and multiplication faster well that allows you to trade faster which allows you to do more complex trade and mm. guess what trading stuff me swapping some sheep for some chickens for some carrots that's a fundamentally human activity and when you speed that up many times over that starts to change the world the abacus changes the world right the um the printing press the printing press speeds up the sharing of ideas and sharing ideas is a fundamentally human activity when you speed up sharing ideas many times over you change the world the printing press changes the world is the reformation the renaissance the uh, industrial revolution the scientific revolution right um the steam engine what does the steam engine do it speeds up manufacturing and it speeds up locomotion Mm. turns out making stuff and going places is fundamentally a human activity when you speed that up many times over that changes the world Electricity speeds up powering stuff, making Mm. stuff, changes the world. Radioactivity speeds up the conversion of matter to energy, changes the world. The internet, right, in my lifetime, (laughs) kind of that that speeds up um, the 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 sharing of information, changes Mm. the world. Mm. So we've got this new. So so you know we've we've had lots of different technologies, kind of which you know have come and gone, and there's fads. Why do I think large language models will change the world and the most important technology since the internet is because it's fundamentally human. The creation of ideas, the creation of words, creation of content, writing, sharing ideas, and it speeds it up many times over. Okay. So that is it is it is clearly the most profound thing that I have seen since the internet. And I'm in large language models because I find them exciting. I don't find them exciting because that's what I'm doing, right? You know, yeah. it's the, the direction of causation is that I, 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 as I say, I was retired. 
Yeah. And then I saw them and I was like, oh my God, I have to work with this technology. Yeah. This is going to change everything. It's going to be so exciting. Just for those that don't really understand mm. what a language... Large language. Large language. Yeah, what yeah, sorry. It, so so really? it, it can write. So, so uh, like ChatGPT would be... Right. So, so, when, um, so we, we took our product to market about six weeks before ChatGPT came out. And uh, people looked at us like we were magicians. And then ChatGPT came out and suddenly it was like, it's oh, okay, changer. we get it now. We, we understand what it does. So, um, you know, computers simply couldn't, I mean, kids won't understand this in 20 years time, right? But mm. you go, because it'll be so obvious, but you go, computer, if you'd asked a computer to write a novel or write mm. a poem or write a marketing um, guide or write an answer to a podcast question, computers yeah. couldn't do that, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, prior to kind of like the 2020s. And then suddenly they could, but I mean, it yeah. won't make any sense to them. It'd be like being born after the internet. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, or being yeah. born after television or being born after electricity, right? It doesn't make any, you sort of know there must've been a time before that, but you can't imagine it. Yeah. So, so we're right at the start of that revolution with computers being able to Right. So, you know, kind of so computer generated books, computer generated podcasts. Yeah. Computer, and, and I'm talking kind of the, you know, we work in the language area, but you're already seeing it with artwork. You're seeing it with films. You're seeing it with voiceover artists. Just this this incredible power of creation. And people going, oh, it's not as good as humans. Oh, it's a bit rubbish at the moment. So, well, what well, do you know? Some some of it some of it isn't clearly. Mm. We're right at the start. Mm, <laughs> right? Yeah. We're right at the start of that journey. Yeah. Imagine what it's going to be like once we move a few years in. Yeah. In in some ways, it's scary mm. though because if we mm. take if we think about it and we flip it on its on its head, um, you know, thinking about the negative impacts of AI today you know the loss of jobs if if things are being automated and you can write novels without you know an author being able to yeah. think of those ideas or the shift in the human experience how are you as an entrepreneur going to overcome some of those ob objections especially being in in the ai field what are your thoughts on that yeah so so, so look i i mean i i I should say that I think this technology, like all technology, is fundamentally about augmenting humans rather than replacing them. Yeah. So I don't think an AI is going to write a novel, at least yeah. not a particularly good novel. Yeah. What an AI will do is allow a human writer to write a novel faster. It'd be like, a, imagine like, like already people do this like as a research assistant. assistant. So if I want to write about, um, you know, a particular, I don't know, recipe or something, I can just go on Wikipedia and research it mm. and then use that research to inform my chapter in my text so so that's how generative ai will be used it will mm. come up come up with 10 character names for me come up with 10 plot yeah. lines so, and then i will pick the best one so then refine how it's done it to make it better so it will speed up the process and it will push humans up the creative hierarchy to allow us to do the more uh, judgment more high level more interesting actually kind of activity rather than the grunt work of you know sort of certain words it will help with first drafting i, I don't think a um Although it was one of the, I was going to say, I don't think a, I don't think an AI is ever going to write as well as PG Woodhouse. But one of, the, <laughs> one, of the, one of the first things I did with the large language model was ask it to come up. I gave it. Um, so one of the things large language models are very good mm. at is if you give them examples, coming up mm. with other examples. Mm. And so I gave it a whole load of PG Woodhouse one-liners and then asked mm. it to come up with new one-liners. Mm. And of course, of the next ten eight were kind of rubbish they've got the form of it but they hadn't got any of the deeper understanding of what made a pg woodhouse one liner brilliant but two of them were actually pretty good yeah now of course the large language models don't have any judgment they don't mm. if they create 10 and eight mm. are rubbish and two mm. are good they don't know which two are good and eight are rubbish they need a human to help them with that yeah but given that it can do them in like seven seconds mm. right and then i can discern what's good and bad very quickly that gives you a you know that gives you a, a huge kind of speed 
speed improvement. So look, any any tech adv- so tech. I, I think the history of tech advances is um, people go, oh my god, it's going to kill us all. Then where they, they 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 slightly climb down from it's going to kill us all to it's going to steal all of our jobs, and they slightly yeah. tie down from it's going to steal all of our jobs to oh it's I don't really like it. Um, then they go to what was all the hype about is rubbish, <laughs> <laughs> and then you sort of build your way kind of back up again. Um, I think we're possibly still somewhere between the killer and it's going to steal all of our jobs. And yeah. um, the, the history of tech is you go through that cycle and then actually. Um, game-changing technology becomes something we just embrace and which helps us, you know, the internet, the printing press. God, yeah. like these, these technologies are technologies that don't, um, they don't get rid of humanity. Yeah. They become a tool that humans use to make humans happier and more productive and, and, and generally life better. Yeah, that, it's really fascinating. You just talking about it and breaking it down. And I guess what impact do you think that's going to have on things like efficiency and productivity, perhaps mm-hmm. in the future? How do you think it's going to aid some of those? Yes, yeah, so, so I think it will make writing faster and yeah. it will make writing better because humans will still be fundamentally involved in the process and they will be able to spend their time on things like judgment where where, yeah. you, where, where you want higher level human intelligence. Look, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I'm not naive about this. In the meantime, people will be flooding the internet and flooding Twitter with bot spam, which is just yeah. people using the AI to just come up with superficially plausible sounding stuff that's actually nonsense or you know wrong and so 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 don't get me wrong that will definitely happen um but humans are a smart species we'll move past that and we'll get to um using it for much higher level activity and I, i think you know similarly you know similarly as the internet of course gave a proliferation of dross content but mm-hmm. it also then gave this proliferation of very high level trust. You know, people started to learn what was a trusted source and what was not a trusted yeah. source. And, and, that, and I think the same thing will same thing will happen with with large language model and generative AI content more more generally. Yeah, I've really enjoyed having this conversation. And and before we finish off, I have one more question for you. Your business has really taken off. You've won twenty eight clients within the space of six months. It's thirty eight now. Thirty eight yeah, now. Yeah, Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. You've raised seventeen point four million, or is that number increased as well? It's twenty two million. Twenty two million. Okay. It's twenty two million dollars. Seventeen point four million. Seventeen point uh, four. Yeah. Um, from Blossom Capital to achieve that kind of success is huge. So I know this is a bit of a cheesy question, but what what is your secret to success? Because you've clearly done this more mm-hmm. than once, obviously you mm-hmm. have. And so what what advice would you give to so, so let, let me start from, I don't think raising money is a sign of success. Like uh, raising money is hopefully a vote that at some point in the future you will be successful. Mm. But I, I'm an old school business person. A sign of success is you create a business that makes more money than it spends. Yeah, right? so, yeah. so you don't want to be fundraising. You want yeah. to get past fundraising to creating a sustainable, profitable um, business. And that's what uh, we did at Cordell. That's what the vote of confidence is with that money is to build to a sustainable, profitable business um, going forward. So that that's where I think that's where I think it is. Um, you, you know, and, and I, I know it's the modern media format and, and mm. it's kind of, you know, you, you want the you want the Instagram post, you want the one line Twitter, you want mm. the, you know, guess what? Success is hard. There's also mm. an amazing amount of luck to it as well. So mm. entrepreneurs will all sit and tell you how brilliant they are and what geniuses they are. But, you know, right place, right time and a huge dollop of luck is a huge ingredient in any um, kind of um, success story. Um, so. The rest then is 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 not a one liner, and it isn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, it is. You know, there's just so many elements to it. So, so beyond the kind of the 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 luck kind of piece, you know, you've got to work very very hard. 
Um, you've got to have the right judgments about the right things. You've got to understand the problems that you're trying to solve. Um, we've, we've mentioned fail fast, kind yeah. of like move quickly. You've got to speak to your customers. You've got to understand your market. You've got to stay ahead of your competitors. So you need to know what they're doing without becoming too unduly worried about them because you've got to tell your own story and have your own um, narrative. Um, you know, kind of, you, 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 I think often often people are kind of obsessed with kind of interesting ideas and the intellectualism. Um, actually, I think a lot of success is just working out what works and then relentlessly cranking the handle. Mm. And some of that's just boring. Some of that's just focus. Mm. Like, you know, um, at Corn Dow, I lost track of the number of advisors who would tell me to, oh, you should go into sales apprenticeships or you should go into, and you know, kind of a lot of what I did was just say, no, <laughs> we're gonna focus yeah. on the day job. Yeah. And I'm focusing on the day job's boring, mm. but that's the thing that actually drives success. So working out what works and then the repeated application of what works consistently kind of, I think is really, really important. So, so, but look, I mean, you know, kind of that, that in itself is a simplistic answer to, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a multifaceted and, and difficult question. And I think, you know, we humans, that's uh, why I didn't like Twitter in the first place, <laughs> we, we, we humans are kind of programmed for the simple, easy answers. Mm. But actually, um, most of life isn't a simple, easy answer. Yeah. It's a constant struggle and a constant reinvention and a constant working out of the next answer. And, and once once you kind of accept that, then, you know, kind of you, you get past magic wands and get to reality. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. 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 No, definitely. This has been a great conversation. Thank you pleasure. so much for coming on. No, real pleasure. Thanks for your time. <laughs> Brilliant.